This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. How are you? How are you uh, emotionally at this moment in time? Uh, I'm okay. It is the last episode of Reasons to be Cheerful in its current form after more than six years. I think I'm sort of in denial, really, because I think we can tell our listeners that we are going to carry on with our chatteroo, aren't we? Yes, we are. Yeah, we might not call it a chatteroo. That's currently being debated. <laughs> but we will hopefully be around next week. This is why I said last week that, you know, we sort of basically exaggerated our demise slightly. Yes, but as far as classic cheerful goes. Classic cheerful. Which I think we, we can call the first years the classic era. Isn't that slightly like, is it Coke that did Coke? Or was it Pepsi? Coke Classic. Oh, yes. And then they tried to introduce a new one and it went badly. See, I was thinking more like they call the old Doctor Who Classic Who. Vintage? Does that make us sound ancient? Um, no, it makes the previous episodes sound ancient. Oh, right. Anyway. All right. Well, as, as far as vintage cheerful goes, yeah. uh, where we go deep on the policy yeah. ideas and we have the guests, yeah. this is the end. So yeah. it, it feels like a, a moment to reflect. Definitely. And um, thank you to you if you took time to share your most memorable moments from the podcast. That's a pleasure. <laughs> We we were overwhelmed. Uh, we had so much response. And we're going to spend a little bit of time going through some of the email that we received. We are. This first one comes from Bob Weldon, who says, Ed, Jeff, thank you for all these years of insightful and cheerful podcasting. I have benefited from it hugely. Indeed, I used your 2017 podcast on land tax in my interview for the job I've been in for the last six years. He did get the job, did he? Yes, he's been in it for six years. Yes. Yeah. So we just want to say whatever job you are currently in the process of applying for or, or any job interviews you have in the future, just drop our names in the job interview and see where it gets you. Okay. The next one comes from Sam Longworth. Thanks for creating a space for exciting ideas that inspire hope and optimism. Some ideas that have most resonated, Four Day Week, Right to Rome, UBI. I'd love to see these ideas take root. I really think that in combination, they'd move the needle for people and planet. Yours cheerfully, Sam. Yes, and all those ideas, I think, you hear talked about a lot more now than you did back in 2017. This comes from David, who says, Dear Jeff and Ed, I've listened to every episode every week since it started, including even the trailer, so it will be the end of an era. I've had my weekly dose of cheerfulness, considered myself a borderline millennial, you and me both, David, been inspired to get the Diocese of Bristol registered as a real living wage employer, as well as challenging myself to improve my park run personal best to eventually beat Ed's time. Aww. I know swimming's now your thing, Ed, but if you're ever in Swindon, you'll get a warm welcome at Seven Fields Park Run. I haven't been doing the park run quite as much as I should, that is true. But I think this gives us a chance to talk about me. <laughs> <laughs> Which is something I always like doing, as you know. Yes. Um, and, you know, I do think that the podcast has inspired me, inspired me to parkrun. We wouldn't have done parkrun without it. And and how are you feeling having David say that he has beaten your personal best? Because I know you're very competitive. I tip my hat to him. But you won't be clearing your diary to go to Seven Fields and reclaim your crown. Well, maybe at some point. And then there is swimming. Now, I didn't do the swimming because of the podcast, but... It was a podcast listener who told me about Swim P3 players. So in other words, uh, headphones you can wear in the water, which has definitely transformed my swimming experience and made me much more likely to go swimming. Wasn't it a podcast listener who told you about your little... About the bungee cord for the bin. What was that? The bungee cord for the oh, compost bin. Oh, to foxes getting in your bin. <laughs> no, sorry, what were you going to say? Your zapper, your little thermometer. No, it wasn't actually a podcast listener. No, that was all all your own work. It all my own work. But yeah, so the podcast inspired. Honestly, the you know it made me much fitter, and hasn't had that same effect on you. <laughs> no, but the, these things can take a while to germinate with osmosis. me. Yeah, osmosis. Yes, six years is nothing in the grand scheme of things. Uh, this comes from Barbara, who says, "Hi, Ed and Jeff." I'm sorry, it's my turn. Uh, this comes from Barbara, who says, Hi, Ed and Jeff. This podcast has been a light in some very dark moments. Particular episodes for me was when you talked about the impact of music on primary schools. That was at Abbey Road Studios. It was. 
training the activists of tomorrow, and the introduction of Wales of a Minister for the Future and Young People, not to mention citizens' assemblies and the role of libraries. I really appreciated having a variety of experts giving positive perspectives on different approaches to the organisation of society. I hope you'll give some recommendations of other inspiring podcasts to get us through the week. I can think of a couple. Yeah, Cheerful Chatteroo. <laughs> Do you think it's going to stick now, Cheerful Chatteroo? We, we might be saddled with it. Yep. How often are you using that suffix aru on the end of things? Quite a lot, actually. <laughs> this comes from Jenny Lockwood, who says, My favourite episodes have been those that deal with enriching ordinary life, access to nature in all its forms, low-carbon travel, right to roam, outdoor swimming. Indeed, your episode on European travel inspired my husband and me to become aged interrailers. Wow! And we've just returned from a great trip wow. to Belgium and northern Germany. Wow. I think we could potentially do a cheerful chatteroo whilst interrailing. Together? Yes. Mm, maybe. Uh, what is so bad about the idea of interrailing with me? <laughs> do you think we get on each other's nerves? Maybe I'm not a very good holiday companion, I think. See, I remember when we went on our trip to Vienna, you, you have a slight boundary issue. You want to be chatting every minute of every day. Really? Yes. What, did you find that quite uh, wearing? I just think some people, when they're embarking on international travel, take a book. So you can see that the podcast in its current form may be finishing, but the need for couple therapy for me and Jeff <laughs> is only just beginning. Uh, this one comes from Amadeep. Hi, team. After the gut punch of the 2019 general election defeat for Labour, I scrabbled around looking for hope as a progressive. This podcast was one of the things that gave me and many of my friends that hope in those dark days. Since then, I've become more politically active, a campaigner, and I'm seriously considering standing to be a councillor. The high point of this activity was getting a selfie with Ed in Tamworth on the Saturday before the recent Tamworth by-election. That comes from Amadeep from Oldbury Sandwell. And do you remember going up to Amadeep and asking him if he'd like a selfie? Oh, well, I do go up to so many people and ask them that. So. It's a catchphrase, would you like a selfie? Yeah. And, and that's that just scratches the surface, really, of the email we received. But thank you to everybody who took the time to write to us. We read all of them. And, and they were only nice ones, so Ed enjoyed the experience. Definitely. There were so many, weren't there? There really were. Thank you. Most of them telling us to carry on with Cheerful Chatteroo, yeah? More of which later. Now, we should tell you about the guests that we've chosen for this final episode of Reasons to be Cheerful in its current form. It's going to be a corker, isn't it? It really is. Hannah Ritchie, Deputy Editor and Science Outreach Lead at Our World in Data and author of a book, which I think is forthcoming in January 2024, so we've got a sneak preview, which is entitled Not the End of the World, How We Can Be the First Generation to Build a Sustainable Planet. I read it over the weekend, and it was a great read. And, drumroll, The Runciman. The Runciman Returns. The Runciman Returns. I knew you were going to say that. David Runciman, Professor of Politics at the University of Cambridge and the presenter of a brilliant, relatively new podcast to give recommendations past, present, future. And I think the reason we have David Runciman on is, is not only because he's uh, always a brilliant guest, but it's like a little treat for you. I think, was it The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson where Bette Midler draped herself on the desk and Sanger moving farewell to him. I think that very much is the role that David Runciman is here to play for you. I wasn't aware of that, but um, it's a cameo, a Runciman cameo, yeah? Yes. What's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? Well, my reason to be cheerful is the guests that we've had on the podcasts. And we've, we've had some enormous recognisable names, Bernie Sanders, Jacinda Ardern, Sadiq Khan, our friend Katrina Jakobsdottir, Prime Minister yep. of Iceland. But I, I wanted to highlight all the guests whose names you wouldn't instantly recognise, all the people working away in academia and think tanks and giving deep consideration to the issues that we've talked about on the podcast these past six years and coming up with these ingenious ways of solving them. That has been, apart from our burgeoning late-in-life male friendship, I think that has been been the big thing that I'll take away from this podcast, knowing that whatever the problem is, there are clever, passionate people out there thinking about how to fix it. Very good. I agree. And uh, I think it's the sort of unsung people who wouldn't normally get airtime. Yes, because there's a type of person that broadcast media or print yeah. interviews go with, and it tends to be soundbitey. It tends to be people that they put on against somebody with an opposing view and then let them fight like cats in a sack. And we never wanted to do that. We wanted to find the 
people really thinking deeply about this stuff and just give them space to tell us their thoughts. Yeah, I think of the guest, for example, it's invidious to pick people out, but Karen McCluskey, who we had on, I think it was episode 50 from Edinburgh. It was our live show, yeah. And the, the work Edinburgh that she, she was doing to, to, in Scotland to combat knife crime. And she was just an incredible guest. But there are so many, too, too numerous to mention. Yeah, we've been incredibly lucky to have these conversations. So... Because I got to go first and I bagsied the guests, I've put you in an awkward position here, Ed. What are you going to do for your reason to be cheerful? I've got two reasons to be cheerful, Jeff. The first is our brilliant listeners, because it really makes a difference to know there are people out there who are listening, who are enjoying the podcast, for whom it's made a difference. You know, and it's really striking. I'm sure you find this too. You go out and about and you get people coming up to you and saying, I really enjoy the podcast, talking about their experiences. I don't think we would have possibly carried on for six years if we hadn't had that feedback. And they're just an incredible bunch of people. And then my other reason to be cheerful is you, Jeff. Oh, stop it. Because there I was, a washed-up political leader in 2017, and you plucked me off the floor and you gave me a chance. And I really think you've taken that opportunity and done something with it. I'm very proud of the man you've become here, Ed. No, but in all in all seriousness, it was your idea. This thing would never have happened without you. And, you know, it's sort of made a massive difference to me. And uh, the podcast, the ideas, the friendship with you. So thank you. Thank you. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Now, as we mentioned before, we're very excited to have the author of a new book, which is published in January. The book is called Not the End of the World, How We Can Be the First Generation to Build a Sustainable Planet. She's also a deputy editor and science outreach lead at Our World in Data. Hannah Ritchie, hello. Hi, thanks very much for having me. Congratulations, by the way, on the success of the TED Talk. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a long time ago now. I did it in April and it only came out recently. And have you had old friends and hangers on crawling out of the woodwork in the light of the success of that? (laughs) No, not really. (laughs) When is your TED talk coming, Jeff? I recorded it in 2017 (laughs) on my phone, um, but they don't seem to have done anything with it yet. It's very strange. Maybe Jeff talks are a sort of potential future for us. Yes, I could set myself up as a rival to TED. This is perhaps a conversation that Hannah doesn't need to be privy to. Probably is. It's probably true. Hannah, so despite or maybe even because of studying years of environmental geoscience you call yourself an optimist how did you get to that point i frame myself as an impatient optimist believing that we have the power to change things but it takes deliberate effort and i just have hope and optimism that we are capable and willing to do that but that's but that's based on evidence that's based on patterns you're observing in the data and change you've seen so far Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that comes from a place of stepping back to look at the data on how the world is changing and changing over centuries across a range of metrics. And often when we step back to look at the data, I think there are loads of signs there that we're capable of tackling problems. Talk to us about your journey to this point, Hannah, because it's really interesting the way you talk about it in the book was you didn't start off as the impatient optimist, did you? No, I think if I go back even a decade, I was like really pretty pessimistic, especially coming from an environmental background where it just seems like things are just getting worse and worse and worse all the time. I think part of what led me to a really pessimistic place then was that I could see all these environmental metrics getting better, but I also extrapolated that to assume that all of the human metrics in the world were getting better. So there were more people living in poverty than ever before. There were more children dying, that hunger was at its highest level ever. And I just extrapolated that because I just assumed that that was the way the world was heading. But actually, when you look at the data, it's, it's the opposite. So we've had this effect where human well-being across the world has got dramatically better over the last few centuries. That has, to some extent, come at the cost of the environment. And the big challenge we face is to manage to do both of those things at the same time. So if you were writing a letter to Hannah of 10 years ago, what is different about your thinking now as compared to then? Most human metrics in the world, whether that's poverty, health, education, have got a lot, lot better. We are in a much better position than I had ever imagined that we would be in. If you look at trends in child mortality, for example, these have been dramatic improvements across every country in the world. There's just no exception there. Even the lowest income countries have done way, way better. So I think I would tell my younger self, 
people are working really hard on this. We are making progress. And actually, you can be part of the solution. Like, There's a role for you to play in this. I think the position I was in there was that I became very despondent and couldn't see how I would ever have the agency to be able to move things forward. And that's really flipped. Isn't it the case, though, that especially with the environment, you need a bit of doomsterism to jolt people into action? So in other words, the the pessimism is ramped up and people take it seriously and think about change. Whereas if if you turn up the volume on the optimism, it, it risks breeding a complacency that, oh, everything will be fine. Yeah, I think that's the where I tried to caveat the optimism at the start. I think this, I would call it stupid optimism, where you just assume that things will get better, is very dangerous. It does make us complacent and we can't afford to be. I think when it comes to framing of these issues, I think there's a balance. First and foremost, you need people to be aware of the problem and how serious the problem is. But I think you also need to combine that with this feeling of agency. So you have this feeling of concern, we need to act on this, but you also need to give people the agency that there's something we can do about it. I think what's quite important about your book is you're not just saying we've made progress, you should feel happier about the world, because at the same time you're saying there's lots of terrible things in the world, but it gives us a hint that, or gives us a, a not hint, it gives us an indication that things can improve, yeah? Yeah, I think you can look back at historical data and you can look at problems that at the time seemed unsolvable. And I think for me as a young person, there are environmental problems that just never come to mind anymore because we solved them. And if you go back some decades, that wouldn't have been imaginable. The ozone layer, for example, we just we don't talk about the ozone problem anymore because we solved it. And we don't talk about acid rain in Europe or the US because we solved it. And at the time, these were very contentious problems. They were problems that to many people seemed unsolvable, but there are very clear signs that we solved them. Let's start on some areas where people may be surprised by by what your book says. One of the things you show is that we reached peak carbon emissions per capita in 2012 as a world, and that for the UK, our carbon emissions today are around half the size of our grandparents. Uh, Just say a bit more about this. Yeah, so globally, emissions per person peaked about a decade ago. And total emissions, so not per person, are still growing, but they're growing very slowly. So you've got this balance of per person emissions are coming down a bit, but you've still got population growth. So it takes a little while for those to even out. At the UK level, we've seen really dramatic reductions where emissions, yes, as I say in the book, emissions per person in the UK are about half what they were when my grandparents were my age. So we've seen this really dramatic improvement in the UK. And that isn't just to do with deindustrialization here and globalisation and manufacturing happening elsewhere. Yeah, the standard rebuttal to that is that we've just offshored our emissions to China or India or another country. So they're building the stuff and we're just using it. That's not true. So we can take account of this imports and exports. It is true that UK emissions are higher when we adjust for this. So we are offshoring some of the emissions, but we're not offshoring all of them. And we still see this really stark decline when we take account of that. Let's talk about air pollution. So clearly... You know, one of the terrible things about our societies is we've got millions of people across the world dying from air pollution, including thousands or tens of thousands of people in the UK. But that's not the only story, is it? No. So I think actually air pollution is a very underrated problem. Like we focus a lot on climate change, but there's so many cool benefits to moving away from fossil fuels and air pollution deaths is one of them. So around 7 million, I mean, there are a range of estimates, but around 7 million people in the world die from air pollution every year, which is a massive number. But there are different stories within that. Within rich countries, for example, there has been a really dramatic decline in air pollution over the last 50 or so years. And that's because we've implemented policies to do so. Um, And there are still too many people dying from air pollution. Yeah, we're talking about tens of thousands in the UK still. But that rate is falling. So we are making progress and we need to push for more. Part of what you're doing in the book is saying to people things aren't just heading in one direction, the wrong direction. But that's, that isn't denying the problems, the massive problems and challenges we face. But I think the other thing you're taking aim at is, I guess, people's perceptions about solutions and some of the solutions that people think are solutions aren't solutions. 
Yeah, I think my framing of it is that we need to use the data and research to understand what really makes a difference. And a lot of the things we intuitively feel will make a difference actually don't. There are a range of examples of stuff that feels green and feels natural and feels sustainable. But when you actually break it down and look at the data, that's often not the case. Can I ask you about two of those things, which is degrowth, i.e. we know we don't need economic growth. In fact, we need the opposite, some people say, and local sourcing, because you take aim at both of those in the book. Yeah. So globally, in order to dramatically improve living standards, you need growth at a global level. That's very clear from the data. Now, you can argue that, okay, we can have growth at the global level, but rich countries don't need to grow. And sure, that's that's fine. But you're not going to get the dramatic reduction in emissions that you need globally in order to tackle the problem because a, a, a declining share of emissions are coming from rich countries. So you can go for this light version of degrowth where it's only rich countries doing this, but you're not going to solve the problem. And you can't do global degrowth because that would massively impact global living standards. And then talk to us about local sourcing then. People often have in their heads that the most environmentally friendly way to eat is to eat local food. Someone will say, I'm going to have this local beef or this local steak and that's way better than you vegans importing avocados or soy from the other side of the world. And that sounds intuitive because you think transport, obviously, if it's coming from the other side of the world, that must be really bad for carbon emissions. But actually, when it comes down to it, what makes a much bigger impact on your carbon footprint for food is what food you're eating, not the distance it's travelled. So even your local beef burger is way worse for climate change than shipping something in from the other side of the world. And we're here we're not talking about like marginal differences. We're talking about really large differences. So this, you know, blanket claim that the way we solve the food uh, environment problem is just to all eat local is just not feasible and doesn't work out when you run the numbers. And what does that mean for what needs to happen next in terms of the progress we've made on global hunger? On global hunger, we've made dramatic progress over the last 50 years. That progress is now stalling and in some places is regressing. What I make clear in the book is that the problem with the food system is not that we cannot produce enough food for everyone. Here we're not talking about we produce around 2,500 calories per day and we're kind of on the margins of just about feeding enough people. We produce about two times as much. We produce like more than 5,000 calories per person per day. You said this in a lecture when you were 21, I think I'm right in saying, and, and everybody was surprised. Yeah, It caught the audience. Yeah, so we've got so much to play with here. The problem is not that we cannot produce enough food. It's that we waste massive amounts of it across the supply chain. And that's because one is just standard food waste, which we're all aware of. But there are big, big, big inefficiencies in, in terms of producing meat. So you put loads of calories in to feed animals and you get very little out in meat in return. And the other big one there is biofuels. But what I want to make clear is these are not biophysical limits in our ability to produce enough food. These are human decisions, which means it's within human agency to change that. We can decide what food system we want. We can grow enough food and it's up to us to change that. I think there's something so interesting about the sort of evidence to reach rational views, both about the progress we've made and the solutions and the sort of the data is there. But so much of debate doesn't happen with that data, does it? It's based on other things. I mean, as a data scientist, talk to us about the role of data in public policy, the role of data in political debate. Because I think there's a broader message of your book, isn't there? Yeah, my mentality is that we should use data to understand the world and make better decisions. I'm very clear in the book about trying to stay away from prescriptions of you should do this and you shouldn't do this. I think one, that just doesn't work for people. There are a range of reasons why people choose to do what they do. For, take the local food example. People are not just optimising for reducing their carbon footprint when they choose the food they eat. There are a range of reasons why someone would want to eat local, and that comes down to a range of different values. But I think there are a number of people, or like a large number of people, that really want to do good. They really want to make a difference, and they need the data in order to make good decisions. So I think the role of data is showing people this is the impact that this would have, this is the impact that this would have, and then people then make the decision in line with their values to make that change. 
And as somebody who aspires to be in government, I'm talking about Jeff, obviously, uh, uh, here, what could government do better on these issues that you are talking about in your book, writing about in your book, to use data, do you think? I think one one very clear thing that's coming up recently in the UK in terms of debates around climate is I think it's very obvious if you look at even stepping away from data on environmental changes, if you look at data on the temperature of the UK public on their appetite for these solutions and, and actually taking action on climate, you would see that most people are very much in favour of it. Most people back it. And I think if you're trying to go the other direction, it's actually going to backfire. So in some sense, I think actually just paying more attention to what people value and what they want would, would make a dramatic difference. I think there's something else, though, isn't there? People are desperate to do the right thing. But I think government does a horrendously bad job of supplying them with the data and information to do the right thing. Wouldn't you say, Jeff? Yeah. As somebody who wants to do the right thing, do you think you've got a good guidance as to what doing the right thing looks like? No, absolutely not. I think there's a, there's a, almost a fear of giving the public data. You know, it's some, something we've talked about time and time again. A centralisation, a, a hoarding of everything, including information, and the more you trust people with it. But you also have to give people the tools to understand it. I know, Hannah, that you kind of feel despair looking at the way data's handled often in news reports, both on TV and in the press. I think this comes into part of why I felt really despaired a decade ago or so, where what the media does well and what news stories do well is that they shine a spotlight on specific events that are happening. But the reason those are in the news is largely because they're quite rare events. And the problem is that we see these rare events and we extrapolate and assume that they're very common and they're not necessarily that common. And the other mistake we make is that we often mistake an uptick in the frequency of reporting with an uptick in the, these events that are happening, which is why I like to step back and look at the data to understand, is it just that this has been reported more and more and more, or is it actually that the thing is moving up? But what about sort of giving the public tools to do that, though? Because obviously, because of your work, that's going to come as second nature to you, but that's not how most people consume news and information. No, generally the media doesn't do a great job of that. One is that I think they, to some extent, baby the public and assume they won't like data or they won't be able to understand it. But I think the other big mistake when they do use data is that it often isn't put in the correct context. So we often have this problem when we're working with numbers is that we have no sense of orders of magnitude. So as soon as you say thousands, people think that's really big, but often it's really small in the comparison to billions or trillions. And you'll often see this with economic costs. So there'll be some policy on environment and they'll say, this will cost a billion pounds. And no one has any idea whether a billion pounds is a lot or a little. And yeah, even after all these years of doing the podcast, if, if there's a number involved to do with government spending, I still have to say to Ed, is that a lot of money or a little money? How big a slice of the pie? <laughs> Is that you're doing yourself down, Jeff. Why do you think there is this pessimism bias? Is it that really what we need to do is hold two truths together? One, there are catastrophic events happening around the world as a result of human-made climate change. And two, that doesn't mean we can't do something about it and that we haven't made some progress, but just not enough. I think there's three truths that you have to hold at the same time and have this Venn diagram. And one of those is the world is still awful. On, on all the metrics that I talk about, whether it's human well-being or environmental metrics, we're still in a really dire position. So the, the world is awful, but the world is much better. And if you look at historical trends on this, you can see that the world is getting better in many ways. And then there's the third one, which is the world can be much better. And we need to use the past trends to understand how the future can get better. Let's end with a note of optimism because this is our last episode of Reasons to be Cheerful in our current form. Go on. So you've written this book, you're the data guru. What sort of keeps you cheerful working on these issues? I think it's the number of amazing people that are working on this and really trying to make a difference. I think 
I mean, climate change has basically always been a part of my life. Um, like I remember being 12 years old and doing presentations to the class on how bad things were going to be. And I think part of what I felt then was this loneliness and this isolation that I was kind of screaming out into the void and no one was listening. I don't think that's the situation today. I think there are loads of amazing people from a range of backgrounds and a range of disciplines, all trying to work really, really hard on this. And I think we are really making progress. It just needs to accelerate. But I do think that we'll get there. Well, look, Hannah Ritchie, it's been fantastic uh, to speak to you. Uh, the book is Not the End of the World, How We Can Be the First Generation to Build a Sustainable Planet. It's out, I believe, in January of next year. Um, I strongly recommend it. And uh, we're really grateful to you for joining us. Thank you very much. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, it's my absolute pleasure now to introduce, and it's almost, I, I wouldn't say it's worth us ending the podcast to have him on, but I mean, it is so fantastic to have uh, him on for our last episode, David Ronsterman, Professor of Politics at the University of Cambridge, and also the presenter of a brilliant new podcast. People will know David's old podcast, Talking Politics, but I think if anything, past, present, future is an even better podcast. I can't recommend it highly enough. I swim around the ponds listening to it on me on my headphones. David Ronsman, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure, though. Also a bit sad, given the context. Yes, it is. And can I just say about this new podcast, I've had Ed talking about you relentlessly for the past six years. My wife has discovered past, present, future. And now she is constantly telling me how good that podcast is. I said, you know, he's been in our house. <laughs> and she has so little interest in my work that she had no recollection we, of We this. have met. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I, I'm touched. Thank you. Well, there, there you go. Now, um, so your old podcast talking politics spanned a similar time to ours sort of yeah brexit trump corbyn johnson trust i mean just to sort of start off on this period i know this is a very kind of simplistic question but is there a deep reason why we've seen such political dislocation such unexpected sets of events in this period in a way that was the question that talking politics spent six years trying and probably failing to answer and there's always a danger that you get too interconnected you know there is a a way of thinking about the last six years where you think in a in a sort of Jordan peterson way or whatever that everything is connected and you you're joining up the dots which I think is wrong I think a lot of it politics is always contingent some of it is luck some of it is chance and I was actually also thinking that we stopped pretty much the week that Putin invaded Ukraine and of course, you're stopping around the time of another grim and, and ghastly war. I would say that over that period, over this six, seven year period, clearly one of the things that has been happening is there is a frustration with traditional representative democracy and a frustration with politicians and traditional political parties claiming to speak for, if not everybody, then large groups of people who feel unspoken for, but that the different ways in which that frustration comes out is unpredictable and it's not all connected. It can come out in lots of different ways and not all of that frustration is unhealthy. A lot of it is healthy. A lot of it is positive. A lot of it reveals itself as an appetite for new ideas. And that's one of the things that I think is noticeable over this period and your podcast reflects that a bit, which is previous frustrations with politics tended to come out as familiar sort of ideological positions and now it's really hard to know when you meet someone who's pissed off with politics which way they're going to go. And that's partly because people are genuinely hungry for ideas about ways of doing it differently. And I think so some of that does come out in in the events that you just described, you know, really weird people becoming prime minister, really weird people becoming president of the United States. I mean, both weird and also it's a weird politics that produces that outcome. 
But it does also come out in an appetite for the new. And so we should celebrate that. And is that appetite being met or at least considered differently today than it was back in, say, 2015 when Ed was leader? That question came out wrong, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> no, but no because, I'm joking, I'm joking. Because it wasn't identified in the same no. way back then. And, and, and David's saying that one of the things that we've all noticed is that it exists, that it's there. But I'm, I'm curious to know whether it's being met or we're just going to see that come out in some other form, that unmet appetite. So I think one of the unfortunate things about this period is these electoral outcomes have surprised people, Brexit, Trump, and so on. But particularly Brexit, which, so you can read it in lots of different ways, but one of the ways I think you have to read it is an appetite for things not to carry on as they are. But the response to it in many ways, has been to shut that down, either because people hated the result or actually the people who won that referendum weren't really interested in things not carrying on as they are. You know, For me, the great disappointment of this period is that whatever you think about the merits of Brexit, that was a real <clears throat> shift. You know, That was a kick in the arse for people who think politics can just carry on as it is. But it didn't have the thing that would you'd expect to go with it, which was, right, so we, we actually, so the people have said they want to take back control, right, we need to talk about what that would mean, what are the ways in which people don't have control, what are the ways in which democracy could be opened up to new kinds of input, we haven't had any of that. So I think there's a real awareness it's out there, but there's also a genuine fear of it for people who don't like the results it produces, and actually the people who do like the results it produces, but don't want to follow up on what that means, which is people want something different. So does that mean another kick in the arse is coming or, or does it mean we've got the arse kicking out of our system for the time being? <laughs> I think electoral politics is predictably unpredictable. So it's that thing of what we might go into now is a phase where the expected outcome happens and it surprises us all. I think some things, you know, there are still 10, 15 year cycles in politics that are recognisable. And when a government and a, a way of governing runs out of steam, it really runs out of steam. And I don't think that has changed. So I don't think we're, you know, just because we've had six years of real surprises talking politics, it was sort of traditional that we would gather for breakfast the morning after some event and just look at each other and think, what the fuck just happened there? And I don't think that will be the case after the next general election in this country. The thing that drives it is unquestionably still there. And of course, it doesn't all have to be about elections. So again, I think there's probably too much fixation on marking the appetite for change with votes and electoral outcomes, whereas you feel it in all sorts of different areas of life. Then sort of looking at this 2017 to 2023 period, which may and probably is a bit self-referential to our podcast, this may be a hard question. What do you think has gone worse for the world than you might have expected back in 2017? Or what's gone well for the world and what's gone badly, if that's not too simplistic? Or what's the sort of positive side of the ledger then is there a positive side of the ledger maybe is a better because you can think of lots of things that have gone worse is there a positive side of the ledger so i, I think we face huge challenges uh climate is one i think call it what you like ai or the impact of this technology is another and then there are these surprises say something like brexit which seems like an opportunity to do things differently and that opportunity wasn't taken so i sort of feel between the two poles if you look at either poll it is disappointing we didn't take an opportunity to change the way we did politics when we had the chance. And at the same time, I think we're struggling to meet the really big challenges. But most of the stuff in between is still going quite well. Nothing terrible is happening. Our politics still functions. And if you think about somewhere like Britain, relative to many parts of the world, we still have a, not just a functioning, broadly speaking, non-corrupt and responsive politics. Do you think we've got better at working out how a certain kind of right-wing populism can be defeated because we've had a lot of it over the last six years we covered the polish elections a couple of weeks ago mm. some people see that as a sort of glimmer of of kind of hope mm. around this or do you think that's a sort of do you think that's premature i think it's premature in that when right-wing populism seemed to be on the rise people saw it as a universal wave and now it's maybe on retreat they see the wave dying but you know argentina may be about to elect a guy who you know, makes the Polish version look more mainstream. I don't know, you know, we don't know. And it may be that, you know, I was reading an article saying that the Taylor Swift fans will, will see him off in Argentina. It's <laughs> These things are all very much of their time and place. 
Um, but I do think the difference between now and 2017 is that there is more evidence of how relatively inadequate populism of that kind is when in government. The thing I still think that looms over all of us, and it's in a way what happens in Argentina or Poland is secondary to this, is the possibility of a second Trump presidency. And I would have thought for most of this period that Trump would get one shot at it. And given the state of the world now, a Trump presidency from, what would it be, 25 to 29, taking us through to the end of this decade... I still think it's probably odds against it will happen, but it's definitely a real possibility. That, to me, is like a shadow, that prospective shadow that looms over all of this, and it would make the world a different place. In the way that I don't think the first Trump presidency necessarily did. Explain that a little bit more. So in a way, the first one, to me, reassured me that elections produce these outcomes, and then a stable and mature democracy can change course. Um, And yes, Trump refused to accept the result of the election. And yes, some of his supporters stormed the Capitol and so on. But it's not like he stayed president. It's not like Biden hasn't been able to govern perfectly effectively. It's not like the Republicans have managed to stop the peaceful transition of power. But putting him back in again, in the light of all that has happened, in the light of the fact that he refused to accept the result, in the light of all of the legal cases that are hanging over him, and what it would, I think, signal to him about what he can and can't get away with. But sometimes with him, though, I think it's less about what he could get away with than just being hell-bent on some kind of revenge and and being president. I I don't think the detail of running a country or ideology factor in very strongly at all with him. Yeah, I think it's so. you'd have two things. So first of all, you would have until the end of this decade without anything getting sorted on those big questions. And we probably don't have the time for that. It's an important decade. And the second thing is, yeah, he's motivated by revenge. The political is the personal for Trump, but he's got a lot more to feel vengeful about this time around. Don't we need to underline, and I know you've said it already so well, but I think it just sort of reflect it back at you, this thing about the discontent with the political system. I was very struck that I heard on, I think I said mentioned it to Jeff, that on Pod Save America, they talked about a Pew Research survey, which had talked about Americans' satisfaction with the political system. And just 4%, 4% of US adults say the political system is working extremely or very well. It's astonishing, isn't it? Because you can get 4% of people to agree that Elvis is an olive on Mars. Well, probably the Elvis (laughs) number would be higher. There's the pitch of politics and politicians playing out on that pitch. And then there is a sort of whole other sort of, you know, cloud cover, which is anti-politics. You know, the House of Representatives is the single most unpopular and mistrusted institution. And it is the one that it's in its name. It's meant to represent the people. There's something about that particular form of political representation that worked pretty well in the second half of the 20th century, started to creak, I think, at the beginning of the 21st. And we're still trying to funnel all of our political anger and discontent and also creativity through this pretty narrow gap, which is professional political parties getting their legitimacy, if you forgive me that word, through electoral politics as the primary problem solvers when we could do a hundred other things, things you've talked about on this podcast. And uh, listening to your current podcast, I'm quite struck that, and, and maybe you held this view before, that some of this is about politics substantively answering economic concerns, other concerns, other crises, climate, and so on, absolutely. But I think you also think it is about the way the political system itself works. Yeah, I do. I do. And I think that uh, one of the disappointments when you think about all of these ideas that are out there is the how. How do you achieve this? By what means, given people have had these ideas often for a long time. And we it's not that we're not interested in the how, because I'm aware it's not as interesting, it's not as exciting. It's a bit wonkish and constitutional reform or voting systems or you know, civil service reform or whatever, that's not of interest to most people. I completely get that. But it's just that there is so little sense that we should even experiment with the how. We should try new things. We're quite wild in trying new people whether it's Donald Trump or, forgive me, Jeremy Corbyn or whoever. But 
we don't really try any new ways of doing it. And I think one of the things we got wrong is the balance of risk. We think democracy is really fragile. I get this sense, I had this sense over this period, the sort of Trump-Brexit period, that people think, if we mess around with the how of democracy, we'll let in the people who want to destroy it. My view is that it's actually really robust in, in established democracies like Britain, like the United States. These institutions are, if anything, they're too robust. They're so inflexible. They're so set in their ways. You could open them up quite a lot and they would be fine. The thing I wouldn't recommend doing is electing people who are completely unfit to govern. But I think opening them up to more input in different ways doesn't threaten anyone, actually. But it, it feels to people in the current system like a, a relinquishing of power or a, a lack of control. And it's, but the people in charge, yeah. Yes. Yes. Or the people who might be in charge. I'm not sure, but I think it also goes to what David said, which is people thinking, I'm not saying I believe this, but just people thinking, is that really what people want? Or is, or is actually people want a health service that's going to work for them? Yeah. That actually they really, what people are really fed up with is an NHS on its knees or, you know, school buildings crumbling. And actually the way democracy is done is important, but, you know. I get that. It's never going to be the number one priority. And also it, it would take a really skillful politician to persuade people that, if you want these things to work better, actually, we've been trying to make them work better for a long time. And there is a lot of frustration inside the system as well as outside with how hard it is. Whereas if you have an experimental mindset, if something doesn't work, you try something else, and you try something else. And we don't try many of these things. And we don't offer people the sense that their input could be the thing that would make the difference. What are your top three things we should be trying, either for Britain or elsewhere? Much more direct local democracy, including I would like there to be much more experiments with deliberative democracy. And then just because I do believe it, I would let children vote. Partly because I just think if children voted, people would say you can do all sorts of crazy things. Democracy used to have to overcome these big hurdles of resistance because of the fear of the new. And partly because it's just been so successful for 50 years but it's not so successful now. We've forgotten that we built it, we can build it different. Aside from the rise of the Swifties as a political force. In Argentina specifically, from small acorns. Is there anything that you have been completely blindsided by in a, in a positive way? A lot of people's immediate experience of politics is good. Uh, the ability to change things to get things done, particularly at the local level, but not just at the local level. Most people, I think, understandably, think they've got better things to do with their lives than politics. And it is one of the reasons our politics is skewed is that that means the more activist mindset has a more prominent voice in politics, because most people, I think, are relatively indifferent. But when the indifferent people come across politics, and I'd include myself in this, you, know, you sometimes stumble across it in different forms, and you realise it works, you can get things done. There are people who are really not just competent, but sincerely want to work for the people who employ them and all the rest of it. And I think that happens much more than we realise. And COVID was like a hyped up example of that. Suddenly, what the British state does suddenly mattered to every single person. Uh, and the British state revealed itself to have these incredible powers, most of which we didn't know it still had to keep us in our homes. But at the same time, people realised that it was well-intentioned, almost all of it, and within their own areas where they could act, they were they often felt empowered to do things together. You know, we're, we're human, right? That's who we are. We're angry, we're pissed off, we're frustrated, we're bored, all the rest of it. But when the chips are down, we tend to respond well. That gives us a cheerful note to end on. <laughs> we, we were hoping you'd serenade Ed as well while you're here, maybe. Yeah. You, don't, you really wouldn't want that. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, David, your podcast is carrying on. Ours is carrying on in a different form. We're really grateful to you for joining us, your podcast, Past, Present and Future. It's got essays by you. It's got interesting, fascinating guests, interesting ideas. Thanks so much for joining us. Keep podcasting. It's been my pleasure. And, you know, onwards with whatever version this, this continues in. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Whoa, ho, ho, we're in the outro, ho, ho. Is that the last time I'm going to say that? Or we don't quite know yet? We don't quite know, ho, ho. <laughs> Yeah. No, that'll go in the chatteroo. <laughs> yeah, okay. Are you um are you feeling a emotional uh, or b 
disappointed that we didn't bake an enormous cake for David Runciman to jump out of for you. The latter. I thought so. I'm just in sort of denial, really. People need to stay tuned in to the app, don't they? They shouldn't sort of delete us from the app. No, hopefully, hopefully people won't unsubscribe. We did this in consultation with you. We asked, if Ed and I carried on having a chat every week, would you be up for that? Would you, uh, would you want to eavesdrop on it? And pretty much everybody who got in touch said that they would. So hopefully there'll be some stragglers. But if it was the deep dives into policy ideas and the interviews that you were here for, we just want to say we understand and thank you so much for being here over these past six years. Yeah, we are we are incredibly sort of grateful and uh, it's been a it's been a wild ride. I'd like to thank our guests, Hannah Ritchie and David Ronsaman. We have many people really to thank. We do. We should thank Emma who's been our audio producer. Emma was there from day one. Yep. She was there from the moment of our inception. She was that first chat. The Japanese toilet. Which no longer works. Hasn't worked for about six years. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but em- Emma has stayed up until knocking on for midnight every Sunday, editing the podcast. Knocking after midnight sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. So we, we really want to thank Emma for oh, She's been everything. absolutely brilliant. She's managed to cope with my complete technological disasters, seagulls on the audio, you know... <laughs> Kind of, I forgot to do my recording, anything and everything. Yeah, lots of chewing noises, banging the microphone. Banging the microphone. The hoover going off in the background. I mean, anything and everything. Yes, so we really appreciate everything Emma's done for us. And our producers most recently, Rachel Barmer, who we said goodbye to last week. Before that, it was... Joel Pierce and before that Alex Weissbryce and thanks to Joe Kenyon at Goldfish who has worked with us on developing the podcast in the past few years all of whom have been brilliant yeah absolutely you'd, you'd never guess we were a pair of idiots because of the hard work that they did and um, I also want to thank all the people in Edland who aren't directly involved in the podcast but yeah. perhaps are impacted by it and by that I mean yeah. all the people in your office dating back to the wonderful Lindsay Todd who was around when we first started the saintly Lindsay Todd absolutely they have all been understanding accommodating accommodating Um, now look this is not goodbye so much as see you soon keep looking out for us your feed will be fed if that's what you do with the feed But for now... I'm Emma Corsham and I produce the audio. I've been Rachel Barmer, the content producer of Reasons to be Cheerful. I've been Gail Lofthouse and I was the announcer. I'm Ed Seed and I composed the music. I've been James Deacon and I made the idents. I'm Henry Cull and I designed the website and branding. I've been Emily Power and I did the original artwork. For the last seven years, he has been my friend, my co-presenter, my all-round bestie, Jeff Lloyd. Oh, he's been my north, my south, my east and west, my working week and my Sunday rest, my noon, my midnight, my sea, my land, the Right Honourable Ed Miliband. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. Cheerful.